0: Thank you for tuning into Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. All right, let's pray and then we're going to jump in. Father, as we come and sit under you in your teaching, your scriptures today, God, may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. The date was January 28th, 1986, and I can actually remember the day. We had brought a a TV into my kindergarten classroom. It had those bunny ears on it so that we could tune in to what we were going to watch on television. And it was a day that the whole nation really paused to watch because the Challenger space shuttle was going to take off. It had seven people on it. You may remember that one of them was a school teacher named Krista McAuliffe. The, the, the day before, the weather didn't look great. It was going to be extremely cold for Florida in that time of year. And so there was a man by the name of Alan McDonald, who was one of the engineers that worked on the Challenger, and he went to NASA and he said, I think we should hit Pause. We haven't tested the O-rings at this low of a temperature. We've only tested them at 53 degrees, but nothing lower than that, and I'm worried they're not going to hold. Well, NASA had already pushed the launch of the Challenger back a number of times, and so they said, I'm sorry, but we're going to go anyway. And they went to McDonald and said, would you sign off on this so that we can launch? And he said no. They went to his superiors, and the story goes that They got strong armed a little bit and finally decided we'll sign off on the mission. And you probably know the rest of the story that the space shuttle launched, and 73 seconds into the space shuttle's launch, it blew up. I can remember vividly as a kindergartner watching my teacher start to cry. Uh, Alan McDonald was interviewed afterwards, and he was asked what went wrong, and his statement was that NASA fell prey to one of the greatest and oldest sins, pride. He said NASA had become so successful that they'd gotten by for a quarter century. They'd never lost a single person going into space. He said they'd even rescued Apollo 13 halfway to the moon when part of the vehicle had blown up. It seemed like an impossible task. He said, but they did it. They did it. So how could this O-ring cause a problem when they'd done so much over the years to be successful? All of this success gives you a little bit of arrogance, he said, that we shouldn't have had. But they stumbled yet and... They just continued to press on. In so many ways, they probably thought that this O-ring was not that big of a deal. I mean, it was only a quarter inch thick, after all, (laughs) in this massive space shuttle. How could something so seemingly small make such a big difference? NASA learned a valuable lesson that day. A lesson that's that's clear from the scriptures, a principle that's clear, you probably know it, it's that pride comes before the what? Before the fall. Pride comes before the fall. See, pride is the condition of being puffed up. In the words of the medieval Jewish philosopher Baruch Spinoza, pride is thinking more highly of oneself than is just out of love for oneself. You may think of pride as, a, as an inordinate amount of self-esteem that rises out of self-centeredness. It's a beating of the chest. It's the assumption, I've got this. I'm okay. I'm going to do it my way. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. Please don't miss this. Because pride doesn't just blow up rockets. It also blows up marriages it blows up workplaces, it blows up families, it blows up lives. See, see, I think we've been reminded of the danger of pride even recently, just this week, when Governor Cuomo in New York resigned. I would argue that his problems stem from a pride. But we're not outside of the reach of pride even within the church. I think of churches like, like Willow Creek and Harvest Bible that Have fallen prey to hubris amongst its leaders. I'm listening right now. Maybe you are too to the podcast, "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill," and I'm reminded that overnight, a 16,000 person church almost evaporated because of pride with in its leadership. See, pride has this ability to get in and just like a kernel, start to grow, and its destructive power touches lives, it touches marriages, it touches parenting, it touches families. It's probably touched you in some way, some shape, some form. So here's my question today What if pride is a way bigger deal than we typically realize? C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, pride leads to every other vice. Or you might read sin. Pride leads to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I think he's right. If you go back to the very beginning of our story in the scriptures, in Genesis chapter 2, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that Adam and Eve are given a choice. They're given a choice between two trees, or you could envision it between two paths. One of them is the tree of life, where they learn from God, where, where like an umbilical cord, they are attached to God. They receive their life, they receive their joy, they receive their wholeness, they receive their purpose, they receive their instruction from God. And then the other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Essentially, this path says, You decide. You do what you think is best. You get to decide what's right and what's wrong. You get to decide how you live your life. You get to decide. It's on you. And I'd argue that from the very beginning of the story that the scriptures tell about humanity, the chief enemy of the human soul is pride. Let me say it more specifically for us this morning. The chief enemy of your soul And my soul is pride, is pride. Uh, Jesus addressed the insidious nature of pride in his confrontation with the Pharisees. And listen to what he said at the very end of this story that he told them. He said, whoever wants to exalt or whoever exalts himself will be, what, say it with me, church, humbled. Humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be, what, exalted. Jesus gives two promises in this short little teaching. Here's promise number one. If you beat your chest, if you think I've got it, if you're committed to doing things your way, it may not happen immediately, but it will happen eventually, you will be brought low. He says it's a promise. Um, we write songs about this type of a thing in our day and our time, don't we? In fact, um, one of the songs that we hear often is uh, by, uh, uh, right, was performed by Frank Sinatra. It was extremely popular. You may I know it. A life that's full. More people knew it at the nine o'clock hour. I each every saying, highway. feel free to sing along if you know and it. I, I will if you don't. Much, Much more, more than, than this. this. I I did did it my. my way. I did it my way. Yeah, and if you go and you like read up on this, I think one of the best ways I've heard pride described, it was described by a leadership guru named Kim Blanchard, and he said that ego stands for edging God out. Edging God out. I've got this. Thank you very much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it my way. And what, God, what the scriptures clearly say is that God opposes the proud. Like Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, that God opposes the proud, meaning that God is actively against you if you take a posture of pride. Think about that for a minute. That pride positions our lives against the power and the presence of God. Now, good luck going against God. My money's on him. But promise, too, that Jesus gave in this short little passage, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. The second promise is, and whoever humbles himself will be what? Will be Exalted. Promise too is that if you, if you lower yourself, you'll eventually be elevated. And notice, it's not an active thing like you're going to elevate yourself. It's eventually God will elevate you. God will exalt you. God will work in your life. And it, Peter goes on to write in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, that God's power, sorry, God gives grace to the humble. Paul writes that God's power is made perfect in what? And weakness, meaning when you admit that you are weak, you start to experience God's presence and God's power in your life. In fact, I'd invite you to write this down, that humility is the very thing that positions us to experience God's presence and to embrace his power. Or to say it another way, we must get low if we're going to grow. However, I think you'd maybe agree with me that humility is challenging for at least two reasons. Number one, we tend to view ourselves through rose-colored glasses. I mean, think about it. When we mess up, we have a tendency to blame other people. When we mess up, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. I'm not that bad. There's other people that are worse than me, right? And we tend to view ourselves as being a little bit better than we actually are this was captured for me in the 1980 song by mac davis that is entitled it's hard to be humble listen to what he's saying he said oh lord it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way i can't wait to look in the mirror because i get better looking each day to know me is to love me i must be a heck of a man and he only he doesn't say heck in the original, so if you go home and listen to it, just know that. I must be a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> yeah, we tend to view ourselves through rose-colored glasses, don't we? It's hard to be humble because of that, and it's also hard to be humble because right when you recognize you're humble, don't you have the tendency to go, gosh, I'm really humble. <laughs> Never realized that about me before, but I'm sort of big deal here. And immediately, when we realize we're humble, we are automatically not. So humility tends to be a, a fairly slippery virtue, but it's worth pursuing. In fact, I would argue it's the greatest of all virtues. In fact, the great pastor and preacher John Stott said, pride is your greatest enemy, but humility is your greatest friend. And that's what Psalm 131 is all about. It's a psalm that's about humility, even though it doesn't use that word. It actually describes the life that is humble. I love the way that Eugene Peterson talked about this psalm, Psalm 131. He said it's, it's a maintenance psalm. And I think what he meant by that is that it's a psalm that we're designed to go back to, not just to read and to study, but to let it read and study us. To, to, to read it and then say, God, is this a part of my life? God, is this what my life looks like, or am I, am I opposed to you? Am I, am I going against you? So if you have your Bible, open with me to Psalm 131 as we continue our series that we're calling Road Trip Playlist. We're studying these Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, that the nation of Israel would sing as they were walking and on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. And so as we read this psalm, imagine these religious sojourners who are walking on these dusty streets up to Jerusalem singing this song. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, my soul is within me. Now, I want to argue this morning that that this psalm actually points out three characteristics of humility. And so I want to point out what those are for you. But then I want to ask you to do some soul searching, some maintenance, if you will, this morning. So I'm going to have some questions that I'd like you to wrestle with as we walk through this passage of Scripture this morning, that go along with each of these characteristics of humility. Listen to the way that the psalmist began. He said this, O oh Lord, my, say it with me church, heart is not lifted up. So he's making a, a, a very important point. He's saying humility is actually a condition of your heart. It's about what's going on in your inner life. Now, the term proud or lifted up is a way of talking about the way that a person views themselves. I love the way that the NIV and the NAS trans, NASB translate this. They says, oh, Lord, my heart is not, anybody have it open? Proud. proud. My heart is not proud. And we may tend to think, okay, so here's how we chase after humility. We just beat ourselves up more. In order to not have a proud heart, I just need to remind myself of how terrible I am all the time. This is often called worm theology. Just remind yourself how terrible you are. That's God's purpose for your life. But I would argue that's not at all what the psalmist is doing. In fact, it's, it's far more poignant and nuanced and beautiful than that. What the psalmist is doing, he began by saying, oh Lord, So the psalmist has one eye on God. And then he brings himself into it and he says, Oh Lord, my heart. So at the same time, the psalmist is wrestling with who God is and who he is. And I would argue that it's that convergence that actually leads to the biblical virtue of humility. It's seeing God as he is and seeing yourself as you really are. I love the way that the Puritan pastor John Flavell put it when he said, they that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. So the invitation today is to attempt to see God accurately and yourself honestly. That's where, pri- or that's where humility begins, is to see God accurately and to see yourself honestly. I believe that the journey toward humility begins with the conviction there is a God and it is not me. In fact, that's so good, I think we need to say it together, okay? So would you just admit this morning, there is a God and it's not me. Let's say it together. There is a God and it's not me. Oh, there's such freedom in saying that, friends, isn't there? There's a God who sustains it, who created it all, who holds it all together by the very breath of his mouth, and that God is not you. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes about that, and he says, oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. He's God is, going, God is so deep. We could study God forever and still not get to the end of him. And he says, oh, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. He goes, this God is absolutely perfect in every way. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Did you know that God has never taken a poll to see what type of decision he should make? He's never gone, you know what, I'm not quite sure what to do on this one, so I think I'm going to ask Paulson what he thinks. You can fill in your own name there, right? Who has been his counselor? The answer is no one, no one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And you might go, well, actually I have, I've sacrificed for Jesus. I've followed Jesus. I've given my life to him. And I would just simply ask you in return in all humility, but who gave you your life? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, what a picture of God. And if you want to increase humility in your life, can I just encourage you to study God's holiness? I mean, maybe get yourself a copy of A.W. Tozer's great book, Knowledge of the Holy. And just just dive into that chapter to start off with, and try to wrestle with the reality that God is holy, that He is perfect. That that word holy means set apart or completely other. He is perfect in all of His ways. In in His book, uh, knowledge of the holy. Um, A.W. Tozer says, yeah, we need to wrestle with God's holiness, but don't think you'll ever pin it down. You're you're never going to fully wrap your mind around it. It is is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our comprehension, but we do get a picture in Isaiah chapter 6 about what happens to us when we encounter God's holiness. Because Isaiah had a vision of the throne room of God. You may remember that the first thing he sees are angels gathering around the throne and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then Isaiah says, woe is me. See, nobody walks into the throne room of God and beats their chest. Nobody walks into the throne room of God and goes, gosh, I'm a pretty big deal. No one walks into the throne room of God and goes, goes, "I've, I've stuck the dismount here. No, no. Every single one of us, if we were in the same position as Isaiah, we would do the same thing as Isaiah. Woe to me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And here's what Isaiah's doing. Isaiah is seeing God as he really is. And he's seeing himself as he really is. And the convergence of those two things means Isaiah hits the ground. The image of God he sees is not buddy Jesus. The image of God that he sees is not God saying, oh, Isaiah, you're like, you're a snowflake. You're so special. You're amazing. And... You're a big deal. No, the the image of God Isaiah sees is a God who's holy, powerful, beautiful, and totally set apart. See, humility isn't trying to imagine that you're small. No offense, but humility is realizing you are small. Humility is really just honesty. He's God. We're not. I heard this great illustration, a uh, picture of, of humility. It's, it's like you were standing on the top of, of El Capitan and, and starting to get to the edge of El Cap. Right? See, here's what normal people do when they start to get to the edge of a cliff drop like that. They start to, they start to get low, right? Unless you're a psychopath, Okay. And, and here's, eventually, here's what they do, right? <laughs> I mean, nobody's going, wow, El Cap. Oh, huh, you don't say. What <laughs> right the, my goodness. Nobody, nobody. They get low when they're in the presence of that kind of otherness, that kind of set-apartness. And that's the same picture Isaiah has in the throne room of God. What's really interesting is that if you keep reading in Isaiah, you read that God promises his presence to the humble. It's this almost shocking passage in the scriptures that says this in Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says, for thus says the one. I love that this is capitalized for us so that we don't think we're the one, right? This is God, the one, and it's not you, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in, high, in the high and holy place. Meaning where? Heaven. Not a trick question. Heaven. <laughs> God's saying, I dwell in heaven. And, and. So there's two places God dwells. There's two places that God's manifest presence, his unique presence, his personal presence exists. One is in heaven. Where's the next? Let's keep reading. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God says, I dwell in two places. I dwell in heaven and I dwell with the humble. If you want to experience God's presence power in your life. You've got to get low in order to grow. So there's um, two tests, two questions that I'd like to invite you to ask as we wrestle with, are we the type of people that are humble? Here's the first. Is confession a regular part of your life with God? Is confession a regular part of your life with God? Do you build it into the rhythm of your interaction with God to say back to him, God, I was wrong, you are right. God, I messed that one up, will you forgive me? How often do you come before God in honest confession? But here's a second test. It comes from the second line in this psalm where the psalmist says, My eyes are not raised too high. It, 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 you could read it, my eyes are not arrogant, as the NASB translates it. So here's my question. How often do you look down on or right past other people? Because he's saying, the psalmist is saying, listen, a part of humility is not that our eyes or our heart is arrogant, meaning that we look past other people, uh, meaning that we try to tell their story for them. Well, if I was in their position, I wouldn't have done that. Well, if they just work a little bit harder and pull up their bootstraps, they could get it done. It's interesting, Jesus told a, a parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee. They both went into the temple. The Pharisee went into the temple, beating his chest, thinking he was great. And go read this, this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 18, because the entire passage, it's, it delineates the distance that the Pharisee creates between he and other people. In fact, the very beginning of the story, it says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They're proud. They're beating their chest and treated others with contempt. Did you know the way that you view yourself will determine how you treat other people? And if we're beating our chest going, gosh, aren't I a big deal? We're going to look down on others pretty readily and pretty often. So how often do you come to God in honest confession? And how often do you look down on others, maybe in subtle ways, Because by way of contrast, the the heart that's humble before God is one that invests in genuine life-giving relationships with others. I love the way that C.S. Lewis put this when he said, The thing you would remember from meeting someone who's truly humble is how they seem to be totally interested in you. Because the essence of humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. What a great picture. Have you been in someone's presence where they were just focused on you? That's a heart of humility. And the psalmist continues writing, and here's what he says next. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. We live in a world that's driven by ambition, don't we? I mean, we tell our kids things like, you can be whatever you want. Which can we be honest that's a total lie. Isn't it? I mean here let me give you an example. I am 5 foot 11 plus. I have a very average jump shot and zero vertical. It doesn't matter how much I want to be in the NBA. Friends, it's not going to happen. It wouldn't have happened 20 years ago either. If you're thinking, "Yeah, well, you're in your 40s now, and you can't." No, it never would have happened, right? Like, and so we have this narrative: you can be whatever you want. No, you can't. You have limits, and so do the people around you. And I think that's what the psalmist is getting at. He's going, "There's things that are too great and too marvelous and too big for me." And here's his encouragement: that a characteristic of humility is that you admit that you have limitations and blind spots. Do you know why they call them blind spots? Because you can't see them. Because you can't see them, and other people may be able to, but you can't see them. And it's humbling, friends, it's humbling to step back from ourselves far enough to admit there's some things that I'm convinced of today that I may find out at some point I was wrong about. There are, it's, it's humbling to admit that I have an opinion about the way that things should go and things, the way that things should be done, and I may be wrong. I may be wrong. So here's a few questions to start wrestling with this. How hard is it for you to ask for help? If there's things that are too marvelous and too great for you, that, that means that you need help. How, how hard is it for you to ask for help in the realm of parenting? Gosh, I know. I'm facing this issue with our kids and we just don't know what to do. Maybe how hard is it for you to ask for help for other, from other brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're wrestling with it, a sin issue and you're going, gosh, I just don't think I'm going to be able to conquer this and overcome this on my own, to ask for help from the body of Christ around you. How hard is it for you to ask for help when you're walking through a difficult season financially to reach out to people and go, I don't think we're going to make it on our own. In your marriage, how difficult is it when you're sucking wind and you feel like you're drowning for you to actually reach out and say to other people, I need help. What a beautiful invitation the Psalms give us to admit there are things too great and too marvelous for me. Therefore, I need help. It's a great question to ask. How hard is it for you to admit when you're wrong? You don't need to elbow anybody or point at anybody. That's not nice, okay? Okay. But when we harbor arrogance in our soul, uh, apologizing is close to anathema. It's something that we would avoid at almost every cost. How hard is it for you to admit when you're wrong? And, and maybe you ask this question also. How often do you share your opinion? I mean, do like, really think about that this week. Have this in mind. How often do you share your opinion when it's not asked for? Because we share our opinion when we think we're right and when people we think people wanna know what we think because what we think is correct, right? So just do it. And maybe you embrace this spiritual practice this week, a discipline of, I'm not gonna share my opinion unless it's asked for. (laughs) (laughs) If you're really brave, Share it with a friend or a roommate or a spouse. Tell them, hey, I'm I'm sort of working on not sharing my opinion unless it's asked for. So this week, I'm not going to share my opinion unless it's asked for. And then you'll really realize how much you share your opinion when it's not asked for. Because you'll often get this look, "Uh uh-uh, you didn't share, I didn't ask. Remember your spiritual discipline, you're working. Right, so admit you have, I have we all have limitations and we have blind spots. Here's the next thing the psalmist says. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. I love, this is a process for him. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, now, Weaning a child is not easy. Can I get an amen from some of the moms in here, dads in here, you've seen this, you've been a part of this. It's where the kids go from crying loudly for milk and for food. It's the way that they get what they want and alert us to what's going on on the inside too, eating solid foods and resting at their mother's or father's side. And I think commentator Arthur Weiser captured it really well when he wrote this. He said, Just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means to satisfy his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so too the worshiper, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself, not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. His life center of gravity has shifted he now rests no longer in himself, but in God. But that transition of weaning is not smooth. It's not easy. It's not quiet. It involves a lot of crying and whining and complaining and going, I need that. If I don't get that right now, I'm going to die. Right? That's what the child is thinking when they're getting weaned, right? If I don't get that right now, I am not going to make it. And I think that's the attitude of pride. It's a lack of humility. If I don't get that thing right now, I'm not going to make it. And so I think what the psalmist is subtly saying is that if we're going to, one of the characteristics of humility is to accept that you're not going to get what you want right when you want it. You're not going to get right what you want right when you want it. And so, a few questions that we might ask. How often do you complain? <laughs> I just heard the, the laughing. Okay, yeah. I mean, how often do you complain? When, when you don't get your way, when things don't go the way that you were thinking or the way that you were hoping, how often do you complain. And I just, I feel like I need to impart a word for our church community. Man, there's a lot of complaining in our day and time, isn't there? And I get it. There's a a deep sense of grief of some things we've lost over the last 18 months, year and a half, right? Some things that have changed on us, they're just not the same. I, I, I get that. But I think it's also a spiritual condition of our heart when we see ourselves complaining. And, and listen, I, I get it. There's things that have changed within our church that not everybody's excited about. Not everybody's going, this is the right decision or this is the right thing. And I, what I want you to hear from me as, as one of your pastors is when things don't go the way that you want them to go or decisions are made that you don't think we should make, listen, I want to hear that. I really do. I care. I mean, we have not sat in any meetings and gone, you know what? What are the decisions we can make that would tick off the most amount of people? <laughs> I haven't done that. But I also want to challenge you to pay attention to how much you complain. Because voicing your desires and complaining are two different things. And the scriptures will tell us, do all things without complaining Without grumbling in Philippians chapter 2. And here's what I've realized I've realized it's really hard to be grateful for the things that God has given me if I'm complaining about the things I don't have. It's really difficult to be grateful for the things God has given me when I'm complaining about the things I don't have. Here's another question you could ask How often do you think, I deserve that? I deserve somebody else to do the dishes. I deserve to just put my feet up for a few minutes after a hard day of work. I deserve to be happy in this marriage, and I'm not happy. I deserve this. And I think what the psalmist is subtly reminding us of is that like a weaned child, we're we're sort of distancing ourselves from I deserve and complaining and going, God, our life is completely and wholly and totally in your hands. I deserve is a posture of pride, not a posture of humility. And look at the way that the psalmist ends. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So the trajectory of who he's speaking to is changing. Now he's speaking to the whole nation of Israel. Hope in the Lord. From, From this time forth and forevermore. What's really interesting is that if you go and you read commentaries on this passage of scripture, what you'll find is that a lot of people suggest, well, this last verse was probably added later because it doesn't go along with the rest of the passage. And I would say, I completely disagree. I think it's right in line with what the psalmist is writing about because the humble heart is the heart that starts to think not just about what's going on in themselves, but the humble heart starts to look at everybody else. And they start to ask the question, how can I love and how can I lift and how can I build into the lives of those around me? Which is exactly what the psalmist does. He calls people, hope in God. And this is exactly what the humble heart does. In fact, Jesus would say to his followers, if anyone would be first, he must be last and he must be the servant of God. And you know, friends, maybe the most surprising thing about humility is that the one person who could have walked this earth and beat his chest didn't. Didn't. Jesus was the, the most humble of all. In fact, Paul, in writing about Jesus, an early Christian creed, hymn says that he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant to be born in human likeness, and he was found in human form. He humbled himself, he humbled himself, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So maybe the last question that we wrestle with today is, am I willing to sacrifice so that others can soar? Am I willing to sacrifice so that others can soar? See, if pride is the thing that has the ability to get into our life and and blow up, not just rocket ships, but blow up marriages and blow up relationships and blow up friendships and blow up homes, Humility is the very thing that can come in and heal. I read this story about Benjamin Franklin. He um, was invited to come over to a great Puritan pastor's house. His name was Cotton Mather. And as he went over to Cotton's house and was eventually leaving his house, Cotton yelled, Stoop! Stoop! And Franklin... Didn't hear him soon enough, and he hit his head on this beam as he was walking out of his house. And Mather took the opportunity to do some coaching for the young Benjamin Franklin. And he said, you're young, and you have the whole world before you. Stoop as you go through it, and you will avoid many hardships. Later on in his life, Franklin reflected and wrote, and he said, this advice has been very useful to me. I avoided many misfortunes by not carrying my head too high in pride. Now I wonder what Jesus would be saying to you today. I wonder which of those questions that we've asked he, he wants you to revisit, and he wants to put his finger on, and he wants to invite you to, to repent and to change. I just wanna give us a few minutes. We're gonna sing one last song before we go, but I just wanna give you some time to do business with God. Are you harboring any pride? Gosh, I wanna beg you, Emmanuel Faith, today, would you Attempt to see God as he really is, holy, exalted, lifted high, and to see you as you really are in need of forgiveness. Woe is me. Oh, would you take some time and confess this morning? Do you remember that, man, there's some things you're convinced of that you're wrong about, (laughs) some opinions that you have that aren't right. Me too, I'm with you. Would you ask Jesus to point those out to you? How hard is it for you to ask for help, to say I'm sorry? often do you complain or think, I deserve? The Spirit of God, search us, know us. Show, if show us if there's any way that's wicked or offensive within us and then lead us in the path of everlasting life, we pray. God, we don't want our lives to be like the, the challenger that, that blows up because of pride. We believe that you exalt the humble and humble the exalted. So we wanna get low. We wanna get low so that we can grow. We wanna get low so that we can flourish. We wanna get low so that we can really truly love the people around us. We wanna get low so that we can live the abundant life that you designed for us So in humility, we come to you. We say we love you. We repent of our pride. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.